Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Betsy Feeney, who serves as Vice President of Development at Indiana University Foundation. Welcome, Betsy. Thanks, Brent. Good to see you. Nice to meet you, finally. To meet you. I mean, it is it is uh, rare, but not uh, never, that I get to meet somebody on the podcast. And so, in this case, our listeners won't have to deal with me referencing inside jokes or conversations from a case conference uh, years ago. We'll just kind of start from scratch. And as I do with our guests, although in this case, what I will say is the the Indiana University Mafia is strong and growing on the Rays podcast. And I know that we'll be discussing some of those folks, I imagine, as well. Um, but today it's about Betsy. And so I would love to just get to know you, learn a little bit more about your uh, track into this sector. Uh, tell me more about Betsy in high school. Who is she? Where were you? And what led you to Indiana University and the Kelly School of Business? Yeah, thanks, Brent. Um, it's good to be here. I, uh, I'm usually only a listener of podcasts, and so I was a little nervous that, you know, my my podcast trends so far right now are Smartless and, uh, and Crime Junkie. So I was like, what's Brent going to bring at me today, right? So... <laughs> asking what people's favorite podcasts are. And just to be, to be clear, a lot of first time podcast guests uh, on the Rays podcast. But yeah, tell us about those two favorite, uh, those podcasts. <laughs> well, uh, so I, you know, I sit and listen and I feel like they're my friends now, Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes. And so um, I'm nervous that you know, you don't get to see when their when their special guest appears. So I'm nervous about who's going to pop up here today. But hopefully it's just us. So and then the crime junkie, there's these two girls from Indiana, believe it or not, that just tell all the crazy stories of unsolved crimes. And it's really bad when you're on a run or a walk by yourself and listening to those. So hopefully this will be much more light. Adds a level of intensity to that walk or run uh, for sure. Um, <laughs> Well, now you just gave me a, such a good idea, though, that we should have Zoom bombs mid-podcast for our guests. Like, there you what, go. If, what if Kurt Simic showed up a third of the week or something like that? All right, Lily. All right, our, back to high school. Our, Lily and our producer is listening. Stay tuned future uh, for future episodes. Um, okay, Betsy. So back to high school. Where were you? What were you into? And what led you to IU? Yeah. So, uh, so I grew up uh, in Anderson, Indiana, and I was a super involved high school kid, you know, played two varsity sports, show choir, all the things, and um, knew that I wanted to go to college. I'm really one of those fortunate kids that had multiple generations of families before, of parents and grandparents that had gone to, uh, to IU, believe it or not, all of them. So, um, I thought that I didn't really have any other choice <laughs> in the matter. Um, and I actually only applied to IU. My parents um, were really wonderful and said, you know, we'll pay for your undergraduate education if you can tell us another school you would go to and why it's better than the Kelly School of Business, then we can support that um, at the rate we would pay for you to go to the Kelly School. So um, I really only came to IU, you know, really only applied here and knew that I wanted a big school. Uh, I went to a All meeting. Right. So, so did that challenge by your parents just shut down the conversation or did you pitch yeah, them anything? It, did. it totally did. I was like, oh, I want to go to Colorado. Well, why do you want to go to Colorado? I don't know. It's beautiful. 
right? Like there was no real meat behind it. So I knew I wanted to go to business school. We had one in our backyard. You know, I grew up about two and a half hours from campus and I I grew up a Bobby Knight fan, right? I mean, I grew up in a household that my dad kept the scorecard. I mean, I only had red and white clothing, um, all of that. So this was really in my blood from childhood, but I kept saying, oh, I'm going to go somewhere else. No, that was silly. So so led me to, down to Bloomington, um, knew I wanted a big school. And like I said, my both of my parents went here, my grandparents. So it's just a long history. My siblings both went here, um, but I wanted to make it my own, right? And all the advice I had gotten was get involved to make a big school small. And so I did that from day one. Um, I joined lots of different organizations, tried to figure out what might stick, um, got really involved with my sorority, um, Alpha Chi Omega, shout out to all those ladies listening. Um, and then I found the Student Foundation. So you've, I know you've talked to a f- bunch of folks that may have made their way through there at one point and talk about mafia. That's, that's where we're at. Um, I, I fell in love with our student foundation and, you know, it's this magical place where they box up this idea of leadership, but then they slide in philanthropy and the importance of giving back and expose us to the IU foundation board um, with mentors. And it's just an incredible organization that, by the way, runs the Little 500, which of course you're well familiar with. I think you've met some of my friends and colleagues that have, are super fans of the Little Five, if you will. Um, and I'd be happy to tell you more about the Little Five or Student Foundation. I can't talk about it enough, but I do want to know about the, uh, we've had Matthew Ewing. I've talked to Jonathan Purvis. I'm trying to think of who else probably. And Art. Who? Kurt, of course. Yes, exactly. Kurt Simic, of course. And so tell me more about the Student Foundation, though, because uh, the more of your Student Foundation alumni who I meet, the more it makes me wonder why this isn't like the ultimate copy and steal model. Why does every institution in the country not just say, teach us your ways, which you all would do, I have no doubt, and just replicate the model to a T? It, It feels too unique given mm-hmm. how aligned it with it is with so many of the objectives that we hear about all the time engaging students earlier engaging a future generation mm-hmm. of leaders and it has created such a you know the coaching tree we've talked about the the talent pipeline into this sector literally churning out leaders both at IU and around the country and it feels like a one of the one of a kind situation why is that yeah, gosh, I wish I knew that magic answer. Um, it's so just to give you some stats, right? And I don't know how, how many of your listeners are familiar, but you know, at a big institution like Indiana University, you have an alumni giving rate that's very, I, I would say, very low, right? I mean, I think we're fluctuating 10, 13, 15, I don't know the year, right? Of alums that give back. Our alumni that come through the Student Foundation, which is now around, I don't know, we're probably getting closer to 20,000 lives touched, 18,000. 
um, in leadership positions, whether that's in running the little 500 or in running over the years, we've done regattas, we've done running races, we've done um, singing competitions, um, and all to raise money for student scholarships. And so this idea of giving back is instilled in our leaders and our members, our participants that even get on the bicycle or drive the boat, right? So um, the giving rate, back to that point, 63% of folks of these folks that have gone through the student foundation are donors. And I mean, that's unheard of at a school our size, right? And it's this love of place, love of home. It's the longevity of folks, like you mentioned, Matt, Purvis, Simic. I mean, they're all these wonderful people that have um, come through um, and been leaders of that organization and helped drive student engagement and involvement. And, and it's different in a sense of, you know, my involvement with the sorority, you know, if I were to compare the two, um, because for my involvement with the sorority, it was about my friends. That was my home. Um, but with the student foundation, it's about the institution, you know, it's about building a love of Indiana University and just a long-standing bike race. <laughs> and so not everybody's going to do a bike race. Not everybody has the same maybe connection mm -hmm. or play on another exciting race that that can apply in the same way. But what are the generalizable principles that if you were to go to a different institution, you might say, hey, one of our pillars, like a 50-year bet we're going to make is creating our equivalent of the student foundation. Mm -hmm. What would that recipe look like? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing is it needs to have really passionate leadership. And you need folks that can, um, that believe in, in student development. And I think that that's, you know, when I was in, involved as a student, it was about me developing as a leader. And that's a lot of what I was told of, you know, you're here to, to fail. You're here to try new things. You're here to build yourself. Um, and, oh, by the way, along the way, we're going to sprinkle in all these things about philanthropy and about Indiana University as a lifetime, a lifetime relationship. Um, which you can't do with an undergraduate body of over 30,000 students. So you've got to get these little niches. Um, we've tried to replicate this on our urban campus in Indianapolis. So we have a student foundation in Indianapolis now. We're on our way, right? They've taken on the dance marathon as theirs. Um, they also run a, um, a regatta down the canal in downtown Indianapolis. So I think it's about finding what is your thing? And it doesn't have to be the biggest thing on the campus. It just so happens that ours is um, and give it time, right? I mean, this is a, a race that's been going on for, gosh, I'm people are going to kill me for not knowing the exact years, but I think it's 70 years. I mean, we're, we're running a long history of this at an institution that's over 200 years old, right? So um, just be patient, give it time and find ways to develop your students because that's really what it's all about. 
And so does that essentially mean, in addition to the leadership and the student experience, the engagement, the philanthropy, it's also just supposedly a really fun weekend, uh, allegedly right. greatest weekend in the history of college. Allegedly, that's true. Um, and I met Barack Obama at the race. I was, I was going to say, so is it essentially like a, a homecoming meets reunion sort of vibe? Like, are you running into a bunch of former student leaders that you used to work with or... It yeah, that's a good point. It is for that really small niche, right? You have to think with a student population as large as Indiana University, there's a whole other host of students that have no clue that's even happening that weekend. So, um, but it is for that niche of folks that either were attendees of the race or ran the race or rode in the race. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot of fun that happens. But at the end of the day, um, it's only one small piece of our really large ecosystem. I've never asked this to anybody else, but give me like, what is, what is like one of the epic stories of that weekend that you're allowed to share on a podcast? <laughs> allowed to share. Well, you know, that's funny because I, um, uh, on the, on the working side of it, right. I was always, for lack of better words, in a good place to show up. Um, and so, my friends would show up and they would be, you know, hanging over the fence because there's an infield, right? You got to keep all the students out of the race itself. And so as a student, um, you know, my senior senior year is when you really put this on. And all of my my friends that were not involved with the student foundation show up at the race. And they're like, I know her, you know, and I'm in my suit in the infield, like standing on the stage, waving, thanking. And they're like, I it's so embarrassing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's it, it's got to be it's officially on my bucket list. I've spent yeah, yeah. But it definitely that. ingrained at a young age um, of this love of place and giving back and the importance of a lifelong relationship with an institution. I had no clue it would lead me to this career, but we can get to that. So yeah, for sure. So tell me about um, you're pursuing marketing. Uh, at the Kelly School, an amazing business school. I also just have to say, I, I have this, um, such a soft spot for um, the Kelly School. One of the first people I ever met was named Rochelle Reeves, and she was oh, yeah. leading my relations there at the time and is still with the foundation. And I was just maybe months into my very initial uh, journey period at Evertrue. I, I knew nothing. I knew no one. Um, and for whatever reason, Rochelle just uh, was a real early believer. Wow. I love that. Yeah, yeah. She's still with us. Um, yeah, doing so. really, really great things at the Kelly school still. So, yeah. so I'll need to, to reconnect with her. I um, love that. But, yeah. Uh, so, so I graduated, like you said, with a degree in marketing from the Kelly school and I had every intention of climbing the corporate ladder. I mean, I landed what I thought was my dream job with Procter and Gamble and moved to Boston and had a car. They gave me my own car. I mean, it's like living life. So you're working at like the Gillette building in the seaport? Is that where you are or what? Funny you say that. No, I actually worked from home before work from home was cool. Wow. Um, and sat in my little apartment in Waltham and um, on the third story walk up and had to stay motivated every day, just like a remote gift officer would. I mean, it was all about and that. And tell me about the role. It says account manager, which is usually business code for sales. That's right. That's right. Okay. So um, I started my career selling toilet paper. I'm a Charmin believer and toilet paper and bounty and 
Pampers. Um, and I worked with- Take me uh, through the sales cycle, okay? Take me through the sales cycle. You've got a well-known product that is, uh, you know, pretty pretty uh, in a good spot on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so where, you know, wh what do you walk into when you're an yeah. account manager for Charmin? Uh, what do you learn through the training program? Just tell me about sales at people. Yeah, this is where it's super similar to development, okay? Because I don't have to convince a retailer to put Charmin on their shelf. I don't have to convince an alum that IU was a wonderful experience for them, right? Um, they know that Charmin, they need it on their shelf because that's a, the driver. That's what brings a, a sale on Charmin, brings a, a customer into their store. But what they want you to do is buy a larger size, buy um, a two-ply instead of a one-ply, or um, buy, while you're in the store, all the other things that they have for you. So what I would do um, with P&G, and I'm not sure, I'm sure the model's similar, but I mean, business was evolving so fast at the time. This was before Amazon was even really a customer of theirs, and now they're the number one, right? And so um, the idea is about marketing. And so I was all in the data, right? I spent all of my time in the data analyzing why a Charmin SKU sold higher than um, uh, than an Angel Soft SKU and why they needed more Charmin SKUs than Angel Soft SKUs and placement on the shelf where it is. And, um, and so, you know, when you start out in this business, they put you with all, I don't know uh, where you grew up, Brent, but uh, like an IGA, right? All the little retail shops. And so you start out with really low risk. And uh, I was actually- Start out in the annual fund? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but you don't go to the store. Old days you used to, but now you, and I would hear the stories from my uh, colleagues out East in Boston that were like, oh, I remember sitting on the, you know, the bean bag in the back of the grocery store. And But I would go to the- um, the headquarters of distributors for the most part out east. So I was uh, out with some small grocery chains at their headquarters and, and would talk to the paper buyer or the grocery buyer and convince them to take more Charmin SKUs. And it was an, it's, it's the, the reason I say it's similar to higher ed fundraising is you're not convincing somebody, like I said, to buy Charmin. You're just trying to help them understand why it's good for their business to have more Charmin because it drives other activity. So it's a combination of uh, wanting to have uh, a strong renewal rate, but then also having the ability to expand through additional products, et cetera, uh, cross-sell, if you will. And so when you think about weeks or months where you were really effective, like, or that you're peers, if you think about people you worked with who were just the best in that kind of entry-level role, um, what did a great day, great week look like relative to one that wasn't as effective? Yeah. And again, this is where it's really, really similar to an uh, entry-level fundraiser or a road warrior, 100% major gift officer, where you're only as busy as you make yourself, right? And if I were to sit in my Waltham apartment and do nothing, Someday somebody's going to catch up to me and know that I was doing nothing. Um, in the same way of as a major gift fundraiser, the more entrepreneurial you are, you know, the more you are out um, thinking, uh, diving into the data, figuring out new ways to tell the story about why um, 
we keep picking on. I didn't know I talked about toilet paper this long with you, but here we are. I did it on my first date with my husband too. Awkward. Um, so um, the, uh, you know, this idea of just telling the story in a better way. And I think, you know, that's one of the things you asked is I think that in higher ed, we, um, we're not really telling our story enough yet. And I think I learned that in those early days of, of fundraising or of selling, you know, working at Procter and Gamble is that story as to why mom, we always talk to our customer about, we refer to it as mom, why mom needed Charmin or why that grocery chain needed more Charmin was really clear. And I had the tools at my disposal to tell that story. I didn't have to make it up. I had really, really smart people making those stories for me. But is that equivalent saying why, why, why do 90% or 80% of IU alumni need philanthropy? Mm-hmm. Like, like, is that the way it needs to be reframed around? Cause it's so different, right? We're talking about um, maybe opposite ends of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like literally a hundred percent ish of your alumni are buying toilet paper 10% are giving on an annual basis. It, it's because people need toilet paper. Do they need philanthropy? How do, how do we find a way Love to yeah. fill in? Yeah, that's, I don't know the answer to that, but I think you're really, really onto something there. And I think that's where, um, you know, it's about this idea of needing institutions to to thrive and continue to produce really great talent that are solving world problems, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, I was thinking about it on a, on a personal level recently. I was a first-generation college student at Brown University. I played football there. It was really a life-changing experience. I had amazing alumni mentorship that led to my uh, first, first job. And, um, and I got pretty involved with the football program uh, as a, as a, a young alumni sort of leader and mentor right right early in my career and then uh, have continued to stay involved. Although the last couple of years, um, I've got three little kids under 10, you know, just sort of at that life stage where it's, it, you know, every day is just sort mm-hmm. of survival mode. And, and as a result, I've stepped back a little bit from some of my alumni volunteer activities. And and I was thinking about it over the last few months and actually just had a call with the president of the football association, maybe two weeks ago, where I was like, you know, yes, I've got a lot going on in my life, but I need this connection. Like I need to mm-hmm. be closer to this organization because it's played such a big role in my life. And then it was such, it would almost be like you, you know, not going to the little 500 a couple of years in a row maybe you feel like you need a break or you just spent too much time around it. And then realizing, no, like in the spectrum of things in my life, I'm going to make time for this is a priority. Like it's, it's not just, you know, so I can help, but, but selfishly I feel better when I'm helping. And so it's kind of like, how do we, I don't know, create that same two-way street experience in, in philanthropy, which obviously is the point of, amazing stewardship, right? Mm-hmm. Or like reading those mm-hmm. moments, but it's hard to scale that to 700,000 alumni, um, which which is the rub, I think, in this space. Yeah. And really, really organized alumni engagement, right? Um, and those places to to have folks plug in and and how do we find all the how do, you, 
how do you make a big place feel small? And I, I think that's where that kind of, you know, interest-based engagement lane, which for me is football, for others is a little 500, for others is, is mm-hmm. nothing. It's like, what is that sort of intersection of personal interest and engagement that then could make people, you know, more yeah. excited to have philanthropy in their life? Totally, totally. Um, and I so, hope we can use, you know, tools like like you're working on to help identify those things for folks, right? I mean, that's really what we have to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's so much left to do and and certainly progress is being made, but <clears throat> I don't know. I think those those wow moments are still too far and too few and far between. So you're at PNG, you're in the three floor walk up, uh, <laughs> you're even with the IGA and, and distributors. And at some point you're thinking, you know what, this maybe it's it. not the right track, even though uh, among your Kelly school peers, I'm sure a ton of people were like dreaming about the PNG job. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I would recommend anyone go work for them in a heartbeat, right? Um, but it just wasn't for me. And this is where I show my my elder millennial status, right? Of when my parents were like, well, you're going to quit your job? What? You know, my dad worked at one organization his entire life and uh, like, what are you thinking? And so I'm like, I don't know. I'm just not fulfilled. I'm not really feeling this. And they said, okay, you can quit your job, but you have to write us a reason why there's a different, no. Right, (laughs) right, exactly. Uh, You know, you're walking away from stock options and really great pay increases every year and all these things. And uh, I said, well, there's, I did a lot of reflection. I'm like, there's two people that I want to be, that I thought I want to be when I grew up. One was Kurt Simic. How do I become Kurt Simic? The other, his name is Dick McKegg. And Dick was our dean of students at, at Indiana University when I was a student. I'm like, how do I do that? I don't know how to do that. So I start Googling. I'm like, all right, I got two options. I can go get a master's in higher ed administration, which I'd never heard of. What is that? Higher ed student affairs. Or I'll go have P&G pay for my MBA. And then I'll figure out after that what I want to do. And so I called my old friend. Purvis, Jonathan Purvis. And I said, Hey, um, there's this degree that I'm thinking about going to get called higher ed administration. He was like, Oh yeah. Why are you going to do that? What's going on? I'm like, I don't know. I think I just want to change. And he was like, Oh my gosh, go do it. Go do it. So came back to Indiana. Um, I decided, you know, since I'd lived this urban lifestyle in Boston and Chicago, I needed to live in Indianapolis and which was great because I got really great exposure to our Indianapolis campus. And I worked there as a grad student, um, did a little campaign for the student center we were building. I got involved with that um, as a grad student. And I still didn't know exactly what path I was going to take, whether it was the student affairs track or this fundraising track. Um, but I was that kid in class that was like, yeah, all these things about student development are great, but how are we going to pay for it? What about all, you know, who, how are we going to keep this happening? So I kept coming back to philanthropy and took a little detour in, in admissions, which again is very similar to this work of a, you know, a road warrior, major gift officer. And, um, I eventually got a job at the business school, um, back at the Kelly school in corporate fundraising. And it was the perfect blend of my history. And first of all, we had no intent. My husband and I had no intention of coming back to IU, right. But circumstances crash of 08, we needed to stay safe. I mean, there was a lot of things that led us back to, um, this job, but, uh, yeah. Tell me more about the admissions experience 
and just kind of what, you know, you, you, you've made some great comparisons of what people can learn from a role like PNG or the similarities. Mm -hmm. Tell me about admissions versus advancement, biggest similarities, biggest differences. Yeah. Uh, admissions is really relationship driven as well. Um, I traveled the state of Indiana for Ball State University. I don't know if you've talked to anybody from there yet, but I traveled for Ball State and, you know, a very different institution from IU. Um, learned a lot about the importance of of that incredible institution and what they do for our state um, and talk to students mainly first gen that had never gone to school before and just talked about the importance of higher ed and how, what, you know, talk to their parents, had really wonderful conversations with parents of students considering to, to go to college. Um, and at the end of the day, and I think this is why they really appreciated our conversations. And I'm like, I just want you to go to college, right? I want you to go experience this. And how can I help you? I can't tell you the number of like FAFSA forms I sent to people or directed them to other schools admissions websites when they asked me questions. And, um, but, um, you know, when they, again, I had to stay motivated to, you know, make my own travel schedule um, to, uh, set up my own meetings. You know, none of this happens without you doing it. So it's very similar in that regard. I did have the opportunity to host uh, Gene Kramer Crosby on episode 133, which was a lot of fun, who leads uh, the foundation efforts at Ball State. And then uh, did get to host Jonathan Purvis, who you've referenced uh, on episode 114 for folks who are nice want to learn more. Um, and so you then settled into the corporate and foundation relations role. And so now you're thinking, okay, my job is to build relationships with um, organizations like P&G, for example. Right. Uh, right. So what I say to my sales team all the time is accounts don't make decisions. People make decisions and people happen to work at accounts, right? So if I hear somebody talking about, oh, the Indiana University account, my go-to is always who, who, mm -hmm. there's no such thing. There's just Betsy and her teammates and they're all individual people and, and, and accounts don't make decisions. That's sometimes how that. foundation relations is talked about though. It's that yeah, company totally. at IU and, and tell me about your take on do companies make decisions or do people? I love that. And I'm glad that you're talking to your team about that because that is so critical. And when you think about the relationship Indiana University has with corporations, I can't even begin to count the number of doors that we get in to a corporation through. I mean, you know, let's just use the one in our backyard, Eli Lilly, right? I mean, if you were to say they're, they're probably our number one hiring company, I don't know. Who knows if we can even really truly get an accurate count of that. Um, and they also help us on the research side. They probably, they've probably never sponsored anything. Um, but when I was working in, in corporate relations, I quickly learned that it is about, it is about the people and the beauty of working at the business school is, you know, at, at the time, and, and maybe we still do, uh, you know, we had more people in the C-suite that had Indiana University business degrees and Fortune 500s. You know, we're one of the top um, top 10 at that time. I mean, we produce a lot of alums that are leading really, really wonderful organizations. And it wasn't only just about who are the people or who the who is the person, but 
corporations give out of a lot of different buckets to the university as well. Um, I quickly learned they had a marketing budget. They had a recruiting budget. They have a foundation oftentimes. They had just all sorts of different ways. And we just had to figure out through a relationship, what's the best way to accomplish what they were trying to accomplish um, at the university. And um, I think this is when I, I got excited um, working in corporate relations because I could see all of these different connections that every at every organization had with our institution. And there's just no way sitting in my seat at the business school, I could solve that. Right. And so when I had the opportunity to come over and think in a broader role at the university level, I'm like, sign me up because I can see all these different connections. And it wasn't just about the corporation's relationship with Indiana University, or it's not just, or with the Kelly School, it's about the institution writ large. So, um, yeah, I totally love your, that you talk to your team about the people because that's critical. And, you know, we would identify one, if not five, what we would call corporate champions at every organization that, that I had a relationship with. And then if that individual that was a champion also had a relationship if they were a personal donor, then I also developed a relationship with my major gifts team that was working with that individual. And we would do joint visits. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, given that you were specifically as part of the Kelly school, then there must be corporate and foundation relations at IU more broadly. You could be potentially calling on the same person the same day. And so there's got to be a bit of coordination inevitable that wires would be crossed. I'm sure P&G must experience the same type of thing. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, and there weren't a lot of people and there still aren't a lot doing corporate. Um, and, you know, we we also did the, the transactional side of it. I'm not going to make any bones about that. I mean, that's where there is a transactional piece sometimes in a business school with a corporate partner because they want exposure. They want to get in the classroom. They want to hire our students. They want their logo blasted everywhere. Right. So, um, you know, that was a piece of it too. And so balancing that, how do I get through the transactional muck to the bigger gift, right? right? No, but I think back to the two-way street analogy we were referencing earlier, it's a really good example because there are so many ways you can work together. There's talent pipeline, there's donor pipeline, there's uh, CSR objectives, there's aligning with research, there's, there's a lot there um, and it requires coordination. I have always been you know, someday we're just going to find a way to make it happen. But but I, I think for uh, so many institutions, especially where I kind of, you know, you know, grew up with the company in the Northeast, there was always this sort of class-based affinity model reunions. That's maybe less common at, at a Big Ten format. But it made me wonder um, why there isn't an intersection of something like CFR and I don't want to call it annual giving, but just C CFR and more like full pyramid approach. For example, there are over a thousand, my sources indicate over a thousand IU grads at Eli Lilly, over 700 at Amazon, over 500 at Deloitte, over 500 at Salesforce. Mm -hmm. What if we did a giving challenge by company? What if we made a big place feel small and actually had a, you know, quarterly call where whoever your C-suite champion is at Eli Lilly and Salesforce and Deloitte hosted a Zoom conversation with all of the other IU grads that are at their company that involve both 
a career networking component, you know, people sharing and hearing from leaders that have this combination of education plus corporate affinity. Um, but then that results in a challenge. And, and hey, last year, uh, all of our Lilly alumni gave at a 22% rate. We'd like to get that to 50% rate. You know, mm-hmm. is there something there? Like, why why don't we take the corporate meets individual giving sort of lens to maybe rally people? Love that. And, you know, and we would, we would do that on a small scale um, when I was at the business school where, you know, we would bring in the CEO of whatever company because, oh, by the way, they had a business degree from Indiana University next to their name. And all the folks who'd never got really would have no exposure show up and they immediately have this network. But scaling it university-wide is what we need to do. And well, the kind of thing that I feel like post pandemic is now doable. Like it yeah, would have been totally. most impossible to imagine pulling this off pre pandemic. And now we're like a list and a zoom link away with some scheduling. Uh, so if you decide to test it, let me know how it goes with one of those. I love things. that. No, that, and, and it takes the, <laughs> this idea of then there's something you know, for folks that are, you know, younger out of school, they're super busy. They've got four kids under 10. And, you know, I mean, they're, they've got all these things happening, but if you're saying we're doing this as a way for you to come network with other peer, like that's their that's call. Two, right? That's two way street opportunity. And, and those are some of the, you know, experiences. I mean, getting exposure and access to people like that earlier in my career, it was so transformational, but it was also almost accidental. And it's like, if you can make it a little more intentional and facilitated, um, you know, maybe there's something there. If anybody listening has done something like that, please let us know. We'd love to, yeah. we'd love to highlight it and, and learn from your experience. And so after a couple of years at the Kelly school, you were able to shift into more of a principal and then regional role. Uh, you know, tell me about the principal gifts experience in particular um, what lessons did you draw from that? I think that there's sort of this impression that a lot of people have, which is, uh, you know, if you want to be a leader in this sector, you've got to do principal gifts at some point. I don't think that's 100% uh, true all the time, but I know it doesn't hurt. So what stood out for you in, in those discussions? Yeah, yeah. I've just been so fortunate over my career. I mean, that I've, first of all, I've been able to stay at one institution and get progressively more challenging roles. Um, I always say just do the, do your job, do it really, really well, go above and beyond, even if you're not getting paid for it. And people will recognize that and they'll want to pull you along. And I've been super fortunate to have that happen to me. And I have, you know, really great leaders um, that we were, our former dean of the business school came, Dan Smith came over to be the president of the foundation. Um, he brought over the head of fundraising, Rick Dupree, who hired me at the business school to come over, be his head of fundraising here at the foundation. And um, Brian Melvin, who was one of my, you know, I talked about these joint visits between corporate and major gift officers. He was one of my go-to major gift officers that we would go on joint visits together and just be developed this really great relationship. And so, you know, when they came over here to help get this campaign that we just finished in 2020 off the ground, um, they came over to the foundation to really re- kind of structure our principal gifts program. And I got a phone call uh, from Brian. I had just given birth to my first kid. I was actually in the hospital and I got a phone call from Brian and I, he said, hey, I got a job that I want to 
talk to you about, I think you'd be really good for. Um, it's a new job. You know, we're tra- starting this principal guest program. And I said, I want to know more about that, but can you give me like a couple weeks? And he was like, yeah, what's up? I'm like, I just, I'm in the hospital. <laughs> so, so I took my new son um, to, you know, have lunch with him a couple weeks later and uh, learned about what we were trying to do. And so to me, I wasn't thinking about how do I grow my career and this principal gifts the next job. For me, it was about, I really think I want to do this job, this fundraising philanthropy thing. I want to learn as much as I can. I need, I want to get out of the business school to learn more broad university wide. I mean, we were getting ready to embark on our first comprehensive campaign that covered every single campus across the state of Indiana, which we have five regional campus. We have the Bloomington flagship campus. We have an urban campus in Indianapolis and then two centers and other cities. And so I'm like, I want to go learn about that. I want to be a part of that. And, um, and, and you trust me to do that? sign me up. Let's do it. And so it was a lot of fun, right? We built this new program um, called Principal Gifts. And, you know, we were a very decentralized organization where I spent the better part of a year just talking to folks about the value that the Principal Gifts program could add to talk about a prospect holistically and about their multi-interest and, you know, what why involve the university president in these gift discussions? And you don't have to go at it alone. We're here to support and help. And, you know, I was able to work on, um, work with donors along the way myself, but also the big part of my job was really helping make a cohesive story for any universities where, as we were headed into what at the time was a $2.5 billion campaign, which we ended at 3.9. So So one of the things I want to learn from you is how do you enable your team to speak to such a broad range of potential impact areas? I think it's one of the real challenges of this sector. Let's contrast it with your time at P&G, where you got to learn one product, one category, maybe better than you wanted to, but you really got to know everything about it. And I feel like, especially when we're talking about more university-wide holistic approaches, how do you how do you even know what products you have to sell if that makes sense like i'm a donor i tell you general things that make me tick maybe you find out other things i've given to you can't just go and like google where that might connect to things happening across five campuses and two centers and all of these different things so like and and that is actually an area like I'm I'm selfishly asking asking because I do wonder if there's not a future state where that's the kind of thing that maybe AI can help make sense mm-hmm. of just given um, how much is out there or maybe as a fundraiser you literally just like Google or browse the website to try to figure out how you can start to piece something together. Yeah, I think the big part is you're always learning always, always learning about something new. I mean, I've been here now almost 14 years and I learn about a new program all like the time. Like where, where else do you go this wide and an inch deep? Right. Yeah, I d- that's a great question and we should learn from them um, because, you know, what we've decided is we're in more of what like a hybrid model, right? Where we have a few generalists here at, at, at Central at the Foundation, but they need their constituent expert in in the school campus or unit. They need the expert in 
Fort Wayne. They need the expert, uh, multiple experts at the Med School of Medicine. Um, and they can know just enough about these places to know that we do have an architecture program. That's really all they need to know is that we have an architecture program because then they have somebody to call on, a major gift officer to, to link them to, you know, to connect them to in that space. Um, they don't have to know all the faculty. Um, they need to just focus on the donor. What is it that makes Brent tick? What is Brent into? How can I learn if Brent's even philanthropic, right? How can we speed that conversation up to make more introductions? And so we don't expect our folks that sit, um, you know, centrally to know everything. For them, it's about knowing who to call. Their relationships internally are far more important. But even that, I mean, <laughs> you, you must be... Uh... It really is an enterprise level where people are essentially meeting each other all the time, right? New fundraiser A, connecting with fundraiser B at campus C yeah. all the time. And so you kind of totally. have to um, meet and, and I imagine, you know, connect, but also keep it pretty efficient, recognizing you're not going to know everybody's life story, everybody's kids, every detail you, you sort of need to. I don't know, be nice and cordial, but also efficient and effective in advancing the discussion. Is that fair? Totally. And, you know, when I, so after principal, I spent a lot of time getting to know all these people and principal guests. So I'm, I feel like I'm one of the folks that I, you name a name, like, oh yeah, they work in, you know, and so I become that resource of folks come to me and they're like, who's in this position now? And um, which was really then when I moved into this regional role, um, I was able to learn about a part of the institution I really didn't have much interaction with because we're not closing a lot of principal gifts, which are $5 million for us in um, Kokomo, right? And so our regional campus didn't really have a lot of interactions with the principal gifts team. And so I was able to learn about a part of the institution that I didn't really know much about. In our pandemic, we immediately have to switch to everybody on Zoom. I'm bringing this group together of these gift officers across the state that really had not spent much time together at all. And we're meeting on Zoom all the time as a group. And they're like, wait a minute, you have that problem? I have that problem. What did you do? And, you know, this was right at the end of the campaign. So we were able to take eight years prior to the campaign, the regional campuses as a whole were averaging around four and a half million end of campaign, the eight years during the campaign, they're averaging nine and 10 million a year, just because, you know, we, number one, scaled to a holistic campaign, but two, they now have resources that they never had before. And so this idea of this cult building culture, I've translated what I learned on the regionals into the Bloomington campus when I started working in my new role with the Bloomington campus, which I assumed everybody knew each other. Come on, y'all work here. They don't, you know, so we're spending time doing the same things, like spending time getting to know each other as fundraisers and as people and shared prospects and things like that. So it's been good. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's such a good example of of where um, I said it before, like everybody is now a Zoom link away. And we know that like Zoom is not an end all be all, but wow, aren't there moments when it can just be so much more efficient. And, 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 and so I think we're sort of in this return to work period um obviously well well past it for many institutions but still trying to figure out how do we hold on and operationalize some of those frictionless connections that became possible right yeah yeah tell me about your experience at the big 10 fundraisers institute mm -hmm. i am a 
Lynette Marshall fan, who was an early guest here, but there's uh, a, a very strong leadership team. Just uh, why does that um, uh, institute stand out so much? Oh my gosh. So I'm fresh off of it, right? I just attended last month and um, I'd always heard about this mystical place called the Big Ten Fundraisers Institute. I was like, maybe one day I'll get to go. And this was that summer. And it is, um, it's, first of all, it starts on a Sunday, right? Which I was like, what in the world are what's happening? But now I get it, right? Because you have a full day totally uninterrupted um, with some really wonderful faculty. And I love that they call themselves, you know, we, we, they built this culture of faculty because it truly is like school. And you've got Lynette Marshall, like you said, from Iowa, you've got Rhea Turtletaub from UCLA, Allison Traub from uh, University of Cambridge, Rod Kirsch, who on the list is like top people I uh, find fantastic. Um, and, you know, Rod is now with GGNA, but it spent um, the bulk of his career um, at Penn State with a tour through Indiana University. Um, and Jim Moore at um, Illinois. And then um, my new favorite uh, is David Lively at Northwestern and uh, just a super wicked smart group of people that, um, you know, you can spend three and a half uninterrupted days with just soaking in their wisdom and experience and thinking about how, you know, dumb you are compared to all of them. (laughs) Well, give everybody one nugget of wisdom that has stood out with you, uh, whether it's tactical or strategic, or maybe just something that uh, just connected. Yeah. From, from the time there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's one thing you hope to maybe, do different, do better, change, learn, apply that you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. uh, I actually walked away with about six things that I'm going to implement. And so I've never left a conference with that, first of all. And so um, one of the biggest things that um, I'm excited to do in my role. So my role now is working with all the lead uh, fundraisers of all the schools and units on the Bloomington campus, their deans and our, in our universe and a campus provost. Right. And I quickly, we were talking about onboarding and training of academic leaders. And I'm like, oh yeah, we do all this really great training. This is so good. And they're like, well, what about the onboarding? I'm like, we don't do that. So now I've stolen things from different campuses, you know, folks that I was there with about how do we onboard a dean? And some of this was from our decentralized model for so long. We just relied on, you know, whatever gift officer may or might not be in place at the school at the time to onboard a dean. And so that's my role now. So I've got to, you know, think about how we onboard a dean that's probably 80% of the time never fundraised before. This is the first time they've had exposure to that into what is the IU Foundation? What do we support? How is that different from Indiana University? What is your team? Who are your boards? Who are the eight people you need to call tomorrow? You know, those kinds of things. So that's really what I'm excited to take on this next year is making a more organized structure for for our deans, which I wouldn't have even thought about it until probably two years in. So take nothing for granted. Take nothing for granted. Be intentional. Yeah. yeah, totally. Uh, this time has flown by and I have three minutes until <laughs> next Zoom call. But I, I have a question to... for you. Okay, Can I flip it on you? Please. What are you doing with all of this? That you've talked to so many people. Are you going to write a book? Are you going to, I mean, you've talked to so many people. You know so many career stories now. It is so 
Oh, you are putting me on the spot. I really want to write a book. It is like on my goals list right now of just, I'm learning so much. I'm hearing yeah. so much. And also how do we, how do we make this body of knowledge, um, more shareable, uh, you know, the, breaking down the specific nuggets, even what I was just thinking when you were sharing that last story is, you know, how do you onboard a Dean? Like every time I hear things like that, I'm thinking that should be a blog post and we should have mm -hmm. lessons from you or Lynette or Rhea or others where we can just create this like public free body of knowledge that um, right now is kind of captured in the transcripts of all of these conversations. And, and that is an area where I think even, you know, back to AI, which I know is something you're excited about, like we are now starting to run these transcripts through AI and starting to see if there are generalizable lessons, themes, how these relationships all connect. How many times has the little 500 been mentioned? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, of these different people. I remember Dana Cummings is another person, I think, who has, has referenced this now. But like, you cannot remember all of this stuff. We're sitting on the data. It's not easy to access. Boy, that sounds like advancement sometimes. And I so we're we're trying to figure it out. Um, but I, I, I'm i going to go a little bit late uh, okay. here if, if you have time, because I do just want to know about the the donor story that sticks with you when you're feeling mm -hmm. stuck. Uh, what, what do you turn to for inspiration? Tell me more about that. Journey. Yeah, thanks for bringing it back to that. Um, I work with this incredible donor down in Florida. He's now 86 years old and um, I'm not the one who found him, right? He's been passed on to three different people. I think I'm the third person he's worked with at this point um, and started, he, he came from really humble roots, right? In Indiana, he's one of those stories of, I want to find more me's in the world, right? Never married, probably lived in one apartment his whole life down in Boca Raton, Florida, probably bought it for a dollar before the world blew up down there and got so big. And what, what, what he always talks about is how he goes to work, work. He's 86 years old and go, was up until last winter when he got sick, going into the office every single day to work for Indiana University is what he would tell me. And I'm like, tell me more about what that means. Like, what does that mean to you? And he said, well, I go into work every day to move my money around and play the stock market for Indiana University. I work for you, Betsy. I'm like, that is just fascinating and incredible and so humbling. He funds every year the income side of his endowment that is, by the way, funded currently through 12 CGAs. He was like the king of the CGA, loves them, um, that he's done for you know multiple years. We haven't gotten a new CGA in quite some time, but um, so it's endowed that way. We know there's an estate gift coming. He's told us a little bit of the value, but he won't tell us the whole thing. Um, and just the fact that he says he goes to work every day and works for any university just warms my heart because he wants to leave a legacy of a scholars program that I don't even know how many it will fund. I can't wait to find out, but I don't want to because that how means you, I'll be gone. <laughs> how do you craft a stewardship experience for that guy? I love it. I want to be that guy. You know, like that is exactly uh, why we're in this space. It's amazing. It is the ultimate pay it forward. Uh, how do you make the experience special for him? And how has that changed in a more digital, remote sort of environment, if at all, yeah. Yeah, so he's one of those no cell phone, I only can call his office, now I have his home number that I his home. So it makes it a bit more difficult. Um, so we are old school. I get him a picture, 
I get a bio of the of the scholars every year. I call them about every other month just to catch up on basketball, what's going on on campus, things like that. Um, he is very much that. And I say, hey, Bob, or, I'm going to come see you in Florida. And he's like, no, 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 you don't spend your money getting on a plane to come see me. So what I have to tell him is I'm coming to see other people. I'm going to swing by and see you. <laughs> Right. Like, so he doesn't want any of it. Um, you know, at the end of the campaign, I we did these beautiful bicentennial camp medals. You know, I gave him one of those. He's like, take it home. Don't spend that on me. I mean, he doesn't want anything, literally doesn't want anything. So it's the easiest stewardship because it's the old school. So he's your anchor visit that you have to pretend is the <laughs> Philip visit. Right. I love it. I love it. Betsy, I wish we could uh, go longer, but thank you so much for sharing. And I look forward to continuing to get to know you and am really appreciative for your team and uh, just all the good vibes that IU uh, has sent around the industry. And, and thanks for closing the podcast with that uh, specific story. Thanks, Brent. All right. Well, I look forward to uh, being in touch. Uh, if people want to connect with you, Betsy, what's the best way? LinkedIn, is that work? Yeah, that works great. You can find me on LinkedIn, Betsy Feeney. And um, got to put a plug in, of course, because we're always hiring. Let folks know that Indiana University is a great place to work. We're headed into um, a really exciting time. We've got new leadership across the institution. We've got a 2030 strategic plan that's rolling out, which when you say strategic plan, typically follows something else. So uh, we're, we're, we've got a lot of really good things going here and it's a lot of fun. Well, thanks for ensuring you got to make that plug, which is uh, really one of the reasons to come on the podcast anyways. So thank you uh, for, for making sure to cover that. And please reach out if you're listening, reach out to Betsy, go to the little 500, get involved, send your kids to IU, whatever it may take. Uh, we just hope that you're able to connect with Betsy uh, and uh, appreciate her sharing her story here. And yeah, I mean, from, you know, toilet papers to bike rides to, you know, first dates, and we covered a lot of, a lot of ground in this episode. So well done, Betsy. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brent. All right. Take care, everybody.